A note before we begin. This episode contains discussions of self-harm, gore, alcoholism, disordered eating, suicide, and suicidal ideation. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, don't hesitate to call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. There is help. From 1989 to 1995, Richie Edwards was the face of the band The Manic Street Preachers. And as their face, he was everywhere. Until one day, he was nowhere. He disappeared. But The Manic Street Preachers are still making music today. And if you go to one of their live shows, you'll see a single microphone set up on the stage that no one uses. Because even decades after he left, the Manics still believe Richie could emerge from the crowd one night and step back into the spotlight to do what he does best. Shock the world. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I want you to meet a young Welshman who lived a life most people only dream about. Then he disappeared. But while many believe he tragically became a member of the 27 Club, the perception that Richie Edwards' story ended at 27 might be totally wrong. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. If you're listening from the UK, chances are you know the Manic Street Preachers, even if you aren't familiar with all their music. They're particularly famous in their home country, but for anyone who hasn't heard of them before, here's what you need to know. The Manic Street Preachers are massive. I'm talking triple platinum, cultural institution-level fame. They may be the biggest band to come out of Wales ever. And they're still as big as ever. Their record, The Ultra Vivid Lament, debuted in 2021 and replaced Drake's Certified Lover Boy as the number one album on the international charts. But I want to start today's story back when their crowds were smaller. Three decades ago, 
when the band was just on the brink of international stardom. It's 1994. The Manics are signed to Columbia Records. They have a devoted cult following, and their faces are everywhere. Newsstands, magazine covers, television interviews, you name it. And Richie Edwards is front and center. Or Richie Manic. That's his stage name. He's considered the band's frontman, but he's not actually the lead singer. He plays second guitar, sings backup, and writes most of their songs. To give you a mental picture of Richie, think Kurt Cobain meets The Cure's Robert Smith with a Welsh accent, tattoos, and heavy eyeliner. He oozes angst, charisma, and an I-don't-care attitude. He's everything a 90s teenager wants in a rock idol, plus an added layer of controversy. The songs he writes are in your face, and he infuses them with politics and other subjects some consider taboo like sexuality, race, police corruption, and abortions. It's why bandmate Sean Moore calls Richie their minister of propaganda. And it's all a part of Richie's vision. He's not interested in what's been done before. As he says, his goal is to be, quote, brilliant on stage and say original things. He also refuses to write a love song. In August 1994, while Richie is in the middle of confronting some personal demons, the Manics release their third studio album, titled The Holy Bible. Richie considers the record his manifesto. With 12 songs total, it's filled with up-tempo high-adrenaline ballads. The general theme is, the patriarchy has set the world on fire, and the future is bleak. Critics love it but it's a commercial flop. And as a result, Richie's artistic vision comes under fire. In late 1994, the execs at Columbia Records ask the band to water down the incendiary lyrics and philosophical deep cuts on their next album. They need to sell more. And at the moment, the Manics' only top 10 hit isn't even a song Richie wrote. It's a cover of the theme song to M.A.S.H., for the most part, Richie's bandmates agree with their label. As much as they love Richie's lyrics, they're willing to forego some artistic integrity if it means getting paid, selling out stadiums, and taking their rock star lifestyle to the next level. Richie, on the other hand, is not. After three albums, he's jaded and tired. It's been a tough year for him personally, and the rock star lifestyle's not all it's cracked up to be. According to Richie, every day is, quote, wake up, travel, sound check, gig. He says it's monotonous. He'd rather be creating new music than playing it, partly because he's not actually a very good musician. He doesn't say that, of course, but he's apparently bad enough that his bandmates dial down his amp during concerts. So after hearing about the new direction their label wants to take, Richie reportedly has an identity crisis. He's not interested in writing commercial hits, but if he's not writing, what good is he? The Manics could get a better guitarist. Now, to be clear, no one in the band or at the label suggests he quit, and no one threatens to replace him either. But Richie considers removing himself, 
stepping out of the spotlight and demoting himself to just songwriter. Maybe he would feel better about writing fluff if his name and face weren't associated with the songs. If he checked Richie Manic at the door and became Richie Edwards again. It's not an easy choice to make. Richie's dedicated most of his adult life to the Manics, but before he makes a decision, he goes MIA. In early January 1995, Richie leaves his condo, doesn't tell anyone where he's going, and stops answering his phone. He doesn't resurface again until two days later. According to Richie, he took a trip to Swansea, Wales, the city where the Manic Street Preachers first formed. He needed time alone to clear his head, but once he's back, he's back. He dives straight into working on their next album, and according to his bandmates, it's the best time they've had together in a while. Richie seems to be on board with the band's new chapter, but more importantly, he appears to be genuinely happy. Richie even signs up to do a US press tour with the Manic's lead singer, James Dean Bradfield. It'll be a bunch of interviews and meet and greets with fans to drum up album sales. They're set to fly out of London on the 1st of February. Two days before he leaves, Richie tells his bandmates that he's really excited to go. But the very next day, the day before the trip, Richie calls his mother from a hotel in London and confesses. He's actually dreading it. Later that evening, James knocks on Richie's door and asks Richie if he wants to check out the London nightlife before their flight in the morning. Richie tells him no, he's gonna stay at the hotel, but he'll see James down in the lobby tomorrow morning. He doesn't provide a reason for not going out, but it seems pretty obvious to James because Richie has a woman in his room. James doesn't really know who she is, but at some point, he learns her name is Vivian. The following morning, Richie doesn't show up when he's supposed to in the lobby. James knocks on his door, but no one answers. When staff members break in, they discover a package sitting in the room addressed to Richie's ex-girlfriend, Joe. It's covered in a collage of old books, plays, and pictures Richie loves that all share one theme, exile. The rest of Richie's stuff is gone, and so is Richie. The band's car, the one Richie and James drove to the hotel, is also missing. After speaking to a hotel clerk, James learns Richie checked out around 7 a.m. And this is when the frantic phone calls start. People start contacting different hotels and other places Richie might have gone. Friends, family, but no one has seen or heard from him. Eventually, the band tells James to fly to America alone. When Richie turns up, he'll join. At some point, Either his family or the cops search Richie's condo in Cardiff, Wales. Inside, they find his passport, his antidepressants, and a toll receipt for the Severn Bridge, which connects England and Wales. It looks like someone left them out on purpose, just like that package in the hotel room. The receipt states Richie drove over the bridge at 2.55. It's not much, but it suggests that after checking out at 7.00, Richie spent roughly eight hours in England, then crossed the border to Wales where his family lives. But by nightfall, Richie's parents haven't heard from him. 
which is unusual. According to his sister, Rachel, Richie calls them every day. The next morning, February 2nd, Richie's loved ones take action. The Mannix manager files a missing persons report. The band hires a private investigator and the Edwards family publishes a classified ad asking Richie to return home. A week passes before the Cardiff police issue a public statement with the approval of Richie's family and bandmates. It reads, quote, No pressure will be put on Richie to return if he does not wish to. His privacy will be respected at all times. It's a tough place to be in. Richie's loved ones don't want to attract too much attention. Richie has been in the public eye, and he could have left because he wanted out of it. People have chased solitude before, only to wake up and find their face all over the news after someone reported them missing. That's not what the Edwards want. They just want a sign that Richie's okay because whether or not Richie chose to disappear drastically changes what steps they take next. And for Richie's family, there's no way to tell. There are no real promising leads until a few more days go by and two separate witnesses come forward saying they saw Richie Edwards alive and well. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A few weeks after Richie Edwards goes missing, eyewitness sightings roll in. First, a college student reports seeing Richie on February 5th, five days after his disappearance. The student isn't a Manic Preachers fan, but one of his best friends was a groupie, so he's interacted with them before. When he saw Richie at the Newport bus station that day, he approached and said hi. According to the student, Richie was standing next to a silver Vauxhall Cavalier and responded to his name. The two carried on a brief conversation about the guy's groupie friend, whom Richie said he remembered. After ending the conversation with, I'll see you later, Richie drives off alone. When police hear the report, they're pretty sure the student's telling the truth for two reasons. First, the car he was driving, the band's car that went missing was also a silver Vauxhall Cavalier. And second, Richie's hair. The student noted that Richie had a buzz cut, which the cops knew was true. A few weeks before he disappeared, Richie cut off most of his iconic hair, and he hadn't done any public appearances since. Meaning, there was really no way for fans to know about it yet. The witness must have been telling the truth. Shortly after, police receive another reported sighting, this time from a taxi driver in Newport, the same town the student spotted Richie in. On February 7th, the driver picked up a passenger from the King's Hotel in Newport. It was a man with a shaved head and a clearly fake Cockney accent who asked to be dropped off in Blackwood, Wales. 
Richie's hometown. At some point, though, the man abruptly changed his destination. He asked the driver to stop at the Severn Bridge, the same bridge listed on the toll receipt found in Richie's condo. After paying his fare in cash, he asked the driver to address the receipt to a Buster Haulage, which is almost certainly an alias because police later learn there's no public record of anyone with that name anywhere. A week after this cab ride on February 14th, someone finds a silver Vauxhall Cavalier abandoned at the Severn Bridge rest stop, close to where the taxi driver dropped off the man who called himself Buster. A few days later, word of the car reaches the police. They run the plates and get a match for the Manic Street Preacher's missing car. Inside, they find photos Richie took of his family, an empty wine bottle, a Sex Pistols cassette, and enough trash to assume Richie was living in the vehicle for some time. The location of the car near a bridge leads police and fans to jump to one conclusion. Richie died by suicide. It wouldn't be that surprising. Others have ended their lives at the Severn Bridge in the past, and Richie had struggled with his mental health very publicly for quite some time. In fact, his struggles are part of what made the Manic Street Preachers famous. There's one moment in the band's history that showcases what I mean, but before I tell you the story, I just want to warn you. It includes an act of self-harm. It's gruesome and upsetting. So if you want to skip ahead two minutes, I totally understand. Here's what happened. It's May 1991 four years before Richie goes missing. The Manic Street Preachers are a small indie band with big dreams. So they send handwritten letters to music journalists inviting them to their gigs. One of these journalists is Steve Lamack of NME Magazine, which is like the British Rolling Stone. At the time, Steve's not a fan of the Manics. In fact, most music critics aren't. The common perception is that the Manics are a bunch of wannabes, there are a couple of kids pretending to be The Clash. But Steve still goes to one of their shows. And afterward, he meets Richie outside. The two go back and forth for about 30 minutes talking about the band. Richie spends most of his time passionately defending the Manics. But at the end of it, Steve's still unconvinced. He reportedly tells Richie, quote, I just don't think a lot of people will think you're for real. And that's when Richie pulls out a razor and carves a phrase into his left arm. The number four, real. Blood pours down Richie's arm as he tells the journalist, quote, we do mean what we do. Afterward, Steve is so horrified, he excuses himself to go find the band's manager. Meanwhile, Richie is taken to the hospital where he receives 17 stitches but not before he poses for photos with the bloody, raw, for real on his arm. Like I said, it's gruesome and upsetting, but afterward, everyone is aware that what happened was problematic, even Richie. The morning after, he calls NME to apologize, and yet the story spirals out of control anyway. After the call with Richie, there's some internal debate at NME about whether they should publish the photos alongside their review, but they ultimately decide to. 
Steve's review calls Richie's self-harm, quote, a stupid piece of spontaneity. But nobody pays attention to the words in the article. With the photos on full display, the damage is done. More news outlets republish the story with the images, and it sells. Within weeks, the Manic Street Preachers sign with Columbia Records. By the time they release their first album, Generation Terrorists, Richie's self-harm has been cemented into the band's image. And the Manics play into it. They use photographs of Richie bleeding to promote their music. During interviews, Richie shows off his scars. And at concerts, Richie starts cutting himself on stage, sometimes with knives fans provide for him. This glamorization of self-harm fuels the manic success, and it doesn't slow down. NME goes from condemning the band to booking them for a cover shoot. During the shoot, Richie slices another message into his body, HIV, spelled backwards. Now, nothing in my research has indicated Richie ever contracted HIV, but this is 1991. The HIV AIDS epidemic is killing thousands of people worldwide, and governments everywhere are ignoring it. Richie could have been making a political statement, and while there are plenty of other ways to make a statement, it ultimately doesn't matter whether he did it for entertainment, shock value, or a cry for help. What's important is, Richie's willingness to self-harm is concerning. And yet, no one stops it. If anything, they feed into it. Richie's self-harm becomes part of the Manic's live performances. And the band's fans, many of whom struggle with mental health themselves, encourage and relate to his actions. Which is only complicated by certain statements Richie makes like how he tells one journalist at a teen magazine, quote, Our manifesto is to kill yourself on your 13th birthday. By 1993, a dangerous feedback loop is in full force, enabling and celebrating Richie's destructive behavior. Richie now has small burns all over his body from putting lit cigarettes out on his skin. He's also battling alcoholism and anorexia, he might be struggling with bulimia too. That's what his sister Rachel suspects. Part of Richie's image is tearing off his shirt and posing for magazine covers. And like so many aspects of his life, Richie's size, the fact that he's so thin, is celebrated. People hear lyrics like, I want to be so skinny that I rot from view. Or, I want to die, die in the summertime. And they want more. In the spring of 1994, Kurt Cobain, the frontman for the American rock band Nirvana, dies by suicide. A fan of Nirvana, Richie, along with the rest of the world, watches as the tragedy turns Kurt Cobain into a larger-than-life legend, further reinforcing a lesson the music industry has already taught Richie. Pain is necessary to achieve greatness. Now, I want to take a second to acknowledge the theories out there about how Kurt Cobain's death might have been the result of foul play. I could spend time debunking them, but instead, I'll just say that Kurt's friends and family by and large accept the official ruling, that he died by suicide as the truth. 
Kurt's daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, told Rolling Stone, quote, Kurt got to the point where he eventually had to sacrifice every bit of who he was for his art, because the world demanded it of him. I think that was one of the main triggers as to why he felt he didn't want to be here, and everyone would be happier without him. End quote. With that, let's get back to Richie's story. A few months after Cobain's death, Richie survives his own suicide attempt. He spends a week in a hospital, then checks into the Priory, a rehab center in London known for taking in celebrity clients, like one of Richie's idols, Brian Jones. At the Priory, Richie's treated for self-harm, alcoholism, disordered eating, and borderline personality disorder. While undergoing treatment, he doesn't stop working. He creates promotional material for the Manic's upcoming album, The Holy Bible. This brings me back to where I started this story, the release of The Holy Bible, with the Manics on the brink of international stardom and Columbia Records asking to water things down. Richie leaves the Priory about a month after The Holy Bible drops. He's sober, and the Manics go on tour just eight weeks later. But rehab is only part of what I meant when I said Richie's confronting demons and going through a tough time personally in 1994. In the six months between leaving rehab and disappearing, a lot happens in Richie's life. His great aunt and his dog both die. He turns 27, and his girlfriend, Joe, reportedly rejects his marriage proposal. So in February 1995, when his car is found parked near the Severn Bridge, the answer feels obvious to fans. But the other three members of the Manic Street Preachers don't believe he died by suicide. For years after his disappearance, they make statements alleging Richie is still alive. They're so sure of it, they continue to send a quarter of the band's royalties to Richie's bank account. In one documentary, bassist Nicky Wire says he believes Richie, quote, could turn up on his doorstep tomorrow. Rather than end his life, the Manic Street Preachers believe Richie planned to disappear and succeeded. According to lead singer James Dean Bradfield, before Richie disappeared, he was, quote, totally obsessed with this idea of victory. Richie apparently used to talk about creating a number one record and then vanishing from the music scene. That way, his music and the mystery of what happened would endure through time. And the theory that Richie intended to disappear is only bolstered by the fact that before the Manic Street Preachers formed, Richie developed a fascination with disappearances. Richie talked about them, read about them, watched movies about them. Not to mention, many of his idols were artists who left society at the peak of their careers. Like author J.D. Salinger, who published Catcher in the Rye and then retreated to the woods to live in near isolation. And actor Marlon Brando, who finished the film Apocalypse Now before abruptly leaving the public eye. And poet prodigy Arthur Rimbaud, who was the toast of Paris before he disappeared into the South Pacific. And perhaps most similar to Richie, Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd, who walked away from the music industry in 1972, 
shut out the outside world, and staunchly guarded his privacy. They're all brilliant artists who abandoned society to control their narrative. And control could have been a major factor in Richie's case. At the time of his disappearance, Richie felt the Manics were at risk of losing what they stood for, and his personal life was in turmoil. In an interview a few months before his disappearance, Richie addressed Kurt Cobain's death by saying, quote, Self-mutilation is a very different issue to suicide. It's a controlled pain personal to you, allowing you to exist to some degree, end quote. Is it possible that Richie staged his disappearance to take control of his life and legacy? That he saw how people responded to Kurt Cobain's death and saw a path to similar infamy? One where he could walk away alive? It's a lot to think about. But Richie's bandmates aren't the only ones having these questions run through their minds. Richie's family is too. And part of the reason they're so willing to entertain the idea of a family member going missing on purpose is it's happened to them before. Years prior to Richie going missing, his uncle went off the grid and cut off contact with everyone in the family. No one knew what happened to him until a decade later, when he just reappeared, like nothing happened. Richie also grew up with a great aunt who locked herself in her home when she was in her 20s, never left, and refused visitors. Richie supposedly never met her face to face, but according to his sister, as a child, he was fascinated by her. Plus, the Edward Snow Ritchie wrote about the Severn Bridge in his diaries as a child. The bridge is the quickest way out of Wales from his hometown. He always viewed it as a symbol of escape, not suicide. What's more, the sightings of Ritchie on February 5th and 7th both happened near the Welsh Passport Office. The Edwards consider this important because remember, Richie's passport was left out in his condo where anyone could see it. If he planned to disappear, maybe he tried to get a new passport, perhaps one with a totally new name. I don't know how easy this would have been in Wales in 1995, but it makes about as much sense as anything. But there's one person who isn't so sold on the theory that Richie ran away. His sister, Rachel. Though the public treat his disappearance as a binary situation, Rachel believes there are millions of possible scenarios. He could have been kidnapped or murdered, but almost no one looks into these as options because the search for Richie Manic got in the way of the search for Richie Edwards. I want to share a quote from Richie's sister, Rachel. It reads, quote, I want my brother to be remembered as more than just a member of a band. I want him to be remembered as an artist and a person and a dearly loved and missed family member, end quote. Think about that for a moment. It's easiest to view Richie Edwards' disappearance through the lens of his public stage persona. 
it's the part of Richie the world knows best. He spent years creating Richie Manic, but there were other sides to Richie as well, like how he was apparently a hopeless romantic with dreams of marriage. And reflecting on the differences between Richie Edwards and Richie Manic, it's hard not to wonder how Richie's public image impacted the official search to find him, and what possibilities were considered. Now, I'll be the first to say, there isn't strong evidence that Richie was murdered, kidnapped, or the victim of a tragic accident, but that doesn't change the fact that the investigation into his disappearance was filled with missed opportunities. In the first 48 hours after Richie went missing, detectives didn't interview the hotel clerk who reportedly checked Richie out. They didn't look into his phone records. They didn't interview James Dean Bradfield, the Manics' lead singer who last saw him at the Embassy Hotel. And maybe the biggest misstep of all, investigators never spoke to Vivian, the woman who was in Richie's hotel room the night before he disappeared. Why? Assumptions. Investigators immediately jumped to the conclusion that Richie ran away, which granted isn't completely illogical. He'd done something similar before, but that doesn't excuse a lack of due diligence. Richie was missing for three weeks before officials even considered suicide, and only after a stranger found the band's missing car. And even then, authorities didn't fingerprint or impound the car for evidence. They took a few photos and told Richie's father he could have the vehicle towed home. Then, Richie's case was split between three different police departments. London, where Richie was last seen, Cardiff, where he lived, and Bristol, where the car was found. Each department pretty much assumes the others are handling the case, but none of them are. Police miscommunication is a problem here in the US, but in the UK in the 90s, it's just as bad, if not worse. At the time, there's no equivalent to the FBI. The United Kingdom's Missing Persons Unit doesn't exist until 13 years after Richie's disappearance. So crucial steps in the investigation slip through the cracks. Even six months after Richie's disappearance, when a lead investigator announces that Richie most likely died by suicide at the Severn Bridge, no one dredges the river looking for Richie. Not one of the three police departments contacts the Severn Area Rescue Association, an organization dedicated to searching the river for missing people. Everyone's talking about Richie. His disappearance is all over the news. There's just little to no action taken to find him. It takes 14 months for officials to add Richie to Great Britain's missing persons database. And they don't even add Richie's DNA to his case file until a decade after he goes missing. That's 10 years of missed opportunities. I can't imagine how alone the Edwards family must have felt to have the world so willing to turn Richie into a commodity, even in his absence, to relegate him to a cliche, just another name on a list of famous singers and musicians who died around the same age, the so-called 27 Club to write an ending for him when no one actually knows the truth. 
Richie's sister, Rachel, calls the police work on her brother's case, quote, beyond careless. And I can't help but agree. Rachel had to give police Richie's DNA. She only found out they didn't have it while conducting her own investigation, researching tides and looking for John Doe's that match her brother's description. In 2008, Richie's family declares him legally dead, not because they fully believe he is, but because they have to in order to handle his affairs. The process is so long and painful that Rachel petitions the government to make it easier for relatives of the missing to gain access to their estates. And she succeeds in 2014 by helping to pass the Presumption of Death Act, granting families access to estates for anyone who's been, quote, not known to be alive for at least seven years. But she never abandons Richie's case. Even after so many years, Rachel calls the not knowing a pendulum, saying some days are filled with despair, and others hope that Richie reinvented himself. She still hasn't found an answer, but in 2017, while helping to publish a book about her brother's disappearance, Rachel finds another mistake officials made. For years, authorities assumed Richie checked out of his hotel at 7 a.m., crossed the Severn Bridge at 2.55 p.m., and spent the hours in between in London. The timeline was based on the time Richie supposedly checked out of his hotel and the toll receipt found in his condo. But Rachel and the team she's working with learned that Richie's toll receipt never said 2.55 p.m. It just said 2.55 they follow up with officials at the Severn Bridge Toll, who, after examining the receipt, tell Rachel Richie actually left at 2.55 a.m. Investigators would have been able to find all this out if they'd bothered to check. The new timeline raises plenty of questions. Did Richie make the roughly two and a half hour drive to Wales in the middle of the night? If he did, how did he check out of the hotel at 7 a.m.? Did Richie have the clerk lie and cover for him? Or did he actually check out at 7 a.m. and someone else drove over the bridge that night with Richie's keys and passport? Was that person Vivian? I don't know. But apparently, Nikki Wire spoke to Vivian shortly after Richie disappeared. And she mentioned something about how Richie wanted to give her his passport. Unfortunately, no one can corroborate whether that's true. So many years later, witnesses like the hotel clerk are scattered to the wind. No one even knows Vivian's last name. The updated timeline may have corrected one false assumption, but who knows how many more there are to sort through. In a way, it feels like not much has changed since Richie disappeared. We still watch celebrities self-destruct in plain sight. We still talk about the 27 Club like tragedy is a foregone conclusion for great musicians. And we still contribute to a dangerous feedback loop with our fascination with pain as a source of entertainment. In the wake of Richie's disappearance, the Manics album The Holy Bible went gold in the UK. Their next two albums were the number one international chart toppers everyone expected The Holy Bible to be. When Richie's presumed dead in 2008, their music joined the ranks of Nirvana, The Doors, and The Rolling Stones. 
but at what cost? It's a question I kept asking myself, looking back at everything Richie did to be taken seriously. Because at the end of the day, Richie's music never changed. It was just people's perception that did. And I'll end with this. Richie, in case you are out there, and your fascination with disappearances brought you to this episode, I just want to say, I hope you're well and happy. You don't owe me or anyone else anything, but I think your sister would love to hear from you. If only so her pendulum, the one swinging between despair and hope, can stop. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. For more information on Richie Edwards, among the many sources we used, we found Withdrawn Traces, Searching for the Truth About Richie Manick by Leon Noakes and Sarah Howis Roberts, extremely helpful to our research. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing person case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Maggie Admire, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb, Amber Hurley, and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.